0: So thank you everybody for tuning in or for coming. We were learning last week about kiddush. We learned about the contemporary practices of the kiddush, uh, all the things that are said, like shalom aleichem, meneset chayil, and atkinu sudata and Azamar beshvachin, and all the wonderful menhagem around kiddush, sitting, standing, all of the above. And tonight we had the option of either continuing with the Shachrit of Shabbat, or to take a break, somewhat of a break, and look at the uh, section of the Sidor, uh, which is called Zemirot Shabbat. And I was conflicted about whether or not to approach this because it's so subjective, and the history is kind of difficult and nebulous, but I thought it would be fun, and honestly we can save Shachrit for another for another week, hopefully, uh, this week's sure won't be too short because, you know, the the zmirot of Shabbat, as a history and as a halacha, don't constitute themselves uh, so much content. The reason I felt it might be appropriate to actually speak about it is because, in a way, the zmirot Shabbat became effectively a liturgy of, a liturgy of, the Shabbat meal. There were even halachic efforts to uh, choreograph the Zmirot in the sense where there's a specific time to say them during the meal and there's a specific way to do them in the meal. They were never choreographed to the degree that we find, uh, you know, like a Pesach seder is choreographed. But in a sense, the Zmirot Shabbat became their own form of siddur, their own form of liturgy uh, for the Shabbat table. Much in the same way that we have a liturgy in the synagogue, there somewhat became a liturgy of the home. And there are different historical views about why the Jewish people chose to do this. Some historians like to say that, you know, anthropologically every culture we find has some sort of music. And the Jews didn't uh, create Shabbat Mirot because they had some sort of obligation to sing, Jews sung, just like everyone sung. Every culture has singing. Zemirot Shabbat is just one manifestation of a nation which loves to sing. Others um, like to point to the development of piyut and how piyut became poetry. Jewish poetry became very popular at the time and therefore the proliferation of Jewish poetry uh, caused it to become a part of the Jewish culture and to infiltrate even the homes. And even more historians like to point out how the developments of the Jewish uh, zmirot that are sung around the Shabbat table coincide, at least in Europe, with the Christian counterpart, which is that the Christians also began, at the same time, to be bringing uh, the religion into the home. Meaning that the Jews were trying to be, to be maktisha to buy it. We are trying to make our homes holy. We're trying to turn our homes into something which is halig Like the shul, we're trying to bring... Uh, What was holy from the shul back into our our houses, and comparative religion scholars like to make those comparisons a lot to how the Christians did the same thing. I'm going to try to stick only to the Jewish sources tonight, meaning only the uh, the the religious piyyutim and the things that we're familiar with. Obviously, drawing comparisons to the Arabic and Christian ones would be a waste of time because we don't really uh, nobody here is really familiar with with any of that uh, source material. But it's gone by zimirot of Shabbat have gone by many names throughout the generations. The early way it was uh, spoken of were piutim. Then they began to be called zimirot. Uh, the Arizal and the Svaradim call them Pizmonim. I'm not actually sure where that word comes from. Uh, I'm not my my uh, biblical Hebrew knowledge is not that extensive. And some people will call them nigunim or nigunim. But nigunim really means like tunes or melodies. So. To trace back the first uh, earliest history we have, the definitive history of ha- what's the earliest we know for sure that Jews were singing smirot around their Shabbat table, we have to go all the way back to 12th century northern France. And mo- mo- most of the earliest sources we have come from various manuscripts of the Sefer called Machzor Vitri, Rashi's school. The, the school of Rashi developed a book, or Simcha from Vitrei, his, his student, developed a book called the Machsor the, 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 the Ma, the of, of Vitrei. It was a compendium of, of Halachot and Tefilot, which were supposed to be the Sidur and the Tefilot and the Halachot of Rashi's school. Over about a hundred years, many different manuscripts of the Machsor Vitri Vitrei were written. Most of them are very similar, however, there are differences and additions here and there where the scribe decided where every different scribe decided to add and delete what he thought was either a mistake or a necessary addition. I owe most of the work uh, for tonight's year to somebody who did his thesis, Albert Cohn, who was doing his thesis for JTS. He did a lot of work on these different manuscripts of the Vitri and compared and contrasted them to literally uh, the actual manuscripts themselves um, in Italy and wherever they are in Oxford to compare and contrast exactly when and what developed, and what parts of the pivot developed when. So the earliest sources we have are the first manuscript of Mach Vitri from 1171, and it contains mm-hmm. three zmirot. The first one would be uh, Baruch Hashem Yom Yom, the next would be Kiesh um, Merashabat, and the third would be Deror Kra. So we'll discuss those authors in a minute, but the that manuscript doesn't say anything about what to do or how to do it it just lists those three Zmirot. now in a manuscript from 1204 the uh, the manuscript of Masoretic specifically says that the custom is for the jewish people to rec- for the for the for the the custom is for us to recite these at the su the Sudav shabbat by day that was the, you know, the, the, the specific writing inside that this is the minhag for, the Jew, for Jewish people to, to uh, recite this by the suda by day. We don't have um, evidence from that time that anybody was singing zmirot by night yet. In fact, it's very likely that they were not, and it was far more popular to sing zmirot by day than it was by night. One could imagine that their nights, without artificial lighting, it, it was hard to do things for a very long time at night, in uh, you know a thousand years ago, therefore, w- if there was going to be extra activity, you were going to do it during the daytime. So in the Sefer Haro'keach, so that's the, so much for the Mafsavichri. He says in the middle of the meal, I could actually read it with exact language for you because it's beginning of the Goldschmidt edition, page two. It says, um, sorry, volume two. Uh, and over the, the delicacies of the meal, they say Zmirot. Right? This, and he lists, the, at least the, in, in this version, a couple of Zmirot which they used to sing. So in the Sefer Rokeach, the Rokeach adds to this. Now, you have to understand the geography for a second. The Master Vitry represents the Minhagim of northern France. The Rokeach was in Germany, uh, sometimes southern Germany. So you would have... This minhag, already going from the 12th century, 100 years later down to the Rokeach, almost 100 years later, down to southern Germany. So the Rokeach writes very interesting thing. This is actually halachic. He says that there were some who had the minhag in Germany to split the afternoon meal of Shabbat into two because they wanted to have sudat shishit right away. They didn't want to have to... Uh, do an extra sudat shishit. A, it was expensive. B, there was no time because they were going to go learn. So what they would do is some people would duberkat uh, ha and then they would wash again, have a kebeah of, of bread and, and then they would uh, they would have dessert and then they would bench again. So that's how they were mekayem the sudat shishit. Other people, he says, would split the meal not by benching. They would split the meal by singing zmirot. This is what they considered splitting the meal. They would first bring out the first course. Everyone would have meat and whatever. Then they would sing zmiroz for as long as they wanted to. Then they would bring out the dessert, and they considered that splitting the meal. They have a source for this, actually. Um, the, there's a if you look in the poskim, the poskim bring these in in reish tsadi aleph in in orchot chaim uh, or The poskim bring different. Uh, opinions about how one can fulfill the obligation of of Sudat Shlishit. Some opinions say you have to use bread, some opinions say you could do it with Peyrot, and this harkens back to this original, uh, this original practice in Germany, which was actually not universal. The Master Vitri actually doesn't like either of these things. He says you can't just do one meal after the other. That's not how you have to do it. You have to do Mincha in between. And so the The post scheme actually don't really like this. They even though the rush uh, you would bench and then and do a second meal right away. The post scheme today prefer that we do one meal mincha, and then another meal. But what's fascinating about this practice was that they use mirot as a way to split the meal, meaning that. Within a hundred years, the Zmirot actually obtained a halachic stature. that It it had a a halachic utility or a a halachic function. It's surprising to me that the Poskim don't even mention mention it. If you look at the Beit Yosef, he brings the Ran. He doesn't bring the Rokach. It's possible that he didn't have the manuscript. But for all intents and purposes, this detail of that earlier minhag that you could be you say your sudat as with just your dessert of the afternoon meal, that seems to have not been uh, given much regard by the post-scheme, but that is an early source, the Rokach is an early source for this. So, the custom didn't just spread from northern Germany to um, southern, uh, so from northern France to, to Germany and southern Germany, it also went to Italy. We have um, both halachic svarim as well as manuscripts from Italy, which prove without a shadow of a doubt that the Italian Jews also sang zmirot at their Shabbat table. So what's interesting, though, is that you'll find that the Ashkenazim loved this. And the Ashkenazim, every 10 years, 50 years, w- when you look at their, their machzorim, or the, whatever, their sidurim, they would add more and more zmirot. Every year they're adding more, and again these things are subjective. Everybody has different smirot that they like, but every year they're adding more. The Italians stuck to the original three, because the Chasid Ashkenaz, meaning the Rokeach and and all the and all the and Rehuda Chasid and, and all of those who spoke about saying Shabbat smirot, um, the these people had an influence which extended as far as Italy. So the Italians saw this as a teaching of the Chassidei Ashkenaz. So for them they always said these original 3 which were Baruch Hashem yom yom, Ki Shabbat and dirur But they never really embellished it as much. If you look at the um, you know if you look at the beginning of the 13th century you begin with you begin with those foundational 3 zmirot and then it begins to compile more and more and eventually you have more and more uh, that it grows from 3 to 7 to 8 to 20 and you have, they made these little books of sometimes just songs and you'll find that they even interpolate those songs with wedding songs. And if anyone learned in yeshiva, you'll remember that the postkim sometimes talk about uh, the practice to... that in, in Germany they used to have this practice to do weddings on Arab Shabbat some people cite economic reasons it was just cheaper basically the entire community would get together and they would you know they would make the wedding together and Erev Shabbat they would start the wedding and then the Suda would go on through uh, Friday night into the Shabbat uh, the Shabbat meal and it was basically kill two birds with one stone you didn't have to pay for a Shabbos meal as well and or a Shabbat brachas so you just did the wedding and the Shabbos me- Shabbos meal all as one talk about being cheap Jews that's the way they used to do it honestly they couldn't afford anything else and um, this was common, so you'll find the early Smiroud collections also contain wedding songs, and you could basically barely discern which one which one was for the wedding and which one was for the uh, for Shabbat. It seems that the Ashkenazim were really excited about this, and they really loved the practice because people on their personal svarim paper back then was uh, back then people if they had personal books or per- personal manuscripts of svarim paper was really expensive, so people. Very often, would write on the fly leaves. Right, the fly leaf is like this. Uh, this part of the book, right, the the first page. People would write mirot on the fly leaves of their sfarim because they didn't want to forget the actual words. They wanted to take one. They wanted to take the piut, the the poetry, home with them so that they could sing it on Shabbat. And therefore, we just have evidence from so many manuscripts that the Ashkenazim found this. Uh, this minhag, very exciting, and they loved singing around the Shabbat table. We don't see the same thing with the Italians, though. The Italians seem to stick a little bit stubbornly to these three songs, like this was the minig of the Hasidic Ashkenaz, and they didn't really add too much, and when they did add, a few, like, a hundred years later, they were stubbornly stuck to Italian piyutim. They never really added things that were from anybody else. They seemed to like their own uh, Italian songs, the Italian Paitanim. They didn't really add uh, much else. But we do see uh, in the um, that it, this practice went on not just from the 13th century but to the 14th century, the 15th century until the time of the printing press. If you look in the Leket Yosher, he's what Talmud of the of the, of the, the Tumat Hadeshen, who's one of the later Rishonim, and he says over about how his Rebbe the Tumat used to love singing Shabbos Miros and he also used and he had this whole interesting choreography of, of a of a minhag, of having different cups of wine in front of him for each, uh, for the Zmirot, while he was doing the Zmirot. And he says that his Rebbe also used to add a pizmon, or any any song which was pertinent or relevant to that holiday. So if it was Hanukkah, they would sing Ma'oz Tzur. And if it was, you know, Pesach time, they would sing ex-Zmirot. So it seems that already people obviously had this minhag. Uh, and this was already a very established minhag in the time, uh, among the Ashkenazim. In the 15th century. However, this Sfaradim didn't seem to do it. And surprisingly, you know, today, the, the Sfaradic Jews, whether they're Syrian, Moroccan, uh, Iraqi, or even Persians and Tamanim, everybody sings Shabbos mirrors. And, lo- and most people who do it love it. However, this wasn't always the case. In medieval Spain, that doesn't seem to have been the practice anywhere. We don't have any evidence from the Spanish post-scheme. Uh, or the you don't see it in the tour you don't see it in the Rush, you don't see it in the you don't see it in the um, uh, in the Abu you don't see any of the spanish post uh, or even the Sidurim mentioning Shabbat mirot it doesn't seem to be something that the spanish jews did which is remarkable that You would think that such a thing would be a natural outgrowth of Judaism. You would find it to be such a part and parcel of the Shabbos table to sing Zmirot. But it seems that for a nice healthy 500 years um, from the inception of Shabbat Zmirot, this just simply wasn't the Spanish uh, custom. Eventually, the Arizal wrote Zmirot himself. He wrote Aramaic Zmirot and he recommended that his Tamidim say them. Once those Aramaic, like az- Azamar B'Shvachin, and th- those three Zmirot he wrote were recommended to be said, eventually the Sidurim started adding, the Svartic Sidurim started adding Zmirot as well. And you could still see evidence of this fact today. If you open a Svardi Siddur, a typical Svardi Sidur, and you put it side by side with an Ashkenaz Sidur, you're going to see that an Ashkenaz Sidur is going to have many more uh, Zmirot for the nighttime and many more Zmirot for the daytime, yet they're not going to have yet um, you're not going to see zmirot in a sephardic siddur very very rarely will you find a, a sephardi siddur which is going to have after friday night and after shabbat day a large collection of shabbat zmirot you just don't find that as much typically a sephardi siddur will either put a section of zmirot in the back or they're going to put a section of zmirot after havdalah and the reason for this is because the spanish jews their Hag of singing was specifically by havdalah There's a Midrash that all of the Rishonim bring, but we don't actually have it, which compares uh, the Shabbat to to a queen, and it says when you escort the Shabbat out, we should escort it with music, and you should sing. So the Spanish Jews used to have the minhag to sing piyutim by Havdalah, like Eliyahu Hanavi and all the similar songs about the ge'ulah. And the Spanish Jews were very familiar with that minhag of of singing zmirot by Havdalah. So till today, you'll find that the Sephardi Sidurim, all the Sephardic Sidurim, have a lot of piyutim after Havdalah, but they'll have much fewer on Friday night in the afternoon, simply because Sidurim evolved from the Sidurim before them, and the Sidurim we have today uh, typically evolved from... From earlier Spanish sidurim, which put most of the piyutim and most of the zemirot after the Habdalah. So that's why you'll you'll notice you might notice that fact in many di Sidurim. I actually looked at the art scroll, uh, the the recent blue one. They couldn't help themselves, so they put the, you know, cause the stone the the, the original uh, Ashkenaz brown one, I forgot what it's is it the stone edition? I can't remember what it was. The uh, the 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 brown original English uh, Artscroll Sitter has a section of smirot so Artscroll kind of makes this compromise where they they put one section of smirot that are alphabetical, and they stick it uh, after Friday night, and they don't put they don't put a lot uh, a lot more uh, than that. As soon as the um, printing press was invented, you find that there was an explosion of Birkonim printed in Germany. Basically, one fifth. Of the things printed from when Hebrew began getting printed on a printing press were birkonim, which is a, an amazing number. That, that means that, that one-fifth of the money being spent on printing things at a printing press for Hebrew, immediately after the printing press opened up for Hebrew manuscripts, was for Shabbat Simirot in Germany. But if you look at Italy, they didn't do this. In Italy, it wasn't until about 50-60 years later that they started printing uh, birkonim. And the Ashkenaz ones in uh, the, the the German sidurim and the German birkonim were much fancier. They would elaborate the Zmirot books. They would put pictures. They would you know add more and more Mizmoyrim to try to try to sell, obviously. And some of them would even stick them into the Tikkun which we discussed last week. The the that um, that pamphlet called Tikkun A lot of them would stick in. Zemiro to that as well. So the Ashkenazim had a a much larger repertoire and a much larger uh, culture around Shabbat singing than any other Jews had, whether it was the Italians, whether it was the Svaradim. If you look in the, we've mentioned, I think last week or the week before, the Sefer Yosef Ometz, which is a Sefer written by um, uh, Yosefer Nerlangen from, from Frankfurt, one of the Rabbanim of Frankfurt. He has a section there. Uh, he, he, I think, he died in like 1560 or something like that. He has a section there uh, where he decides to write some halachot. There's some laws about the Shabbat's mirot, and he he uh, first says that it's forbidden to take non-Jewish tunes and transplant them for the Shabbat's miros, and he says. Don't try to be like those pe- those mitchakimim, those people who think they're clever, and they say that no, if it's a beautiful tune, it always belonged to us. But then the goyim, from the base Tamikdash, but then the goyim stole it, and we're just stealing it back. Don't try to be that clever. That's not what's going on. Um, you know, I, I've heard this story before. Don't try to steal. Don't try to make excuses for stealing a gaesha song by by saying it comes from the base Mikdash, It's usur to steal to to, to use gaesha and their their treif. You shouldn't use a gayish and, again a gentile song or a gentile melody for the Shabbos zmiros. Another halacha he writes is that he writes that a um, the women should not be singing, even if especially if they're singing among uh, with the men. It's not Snias, and the leaders of the community should should protest against this. The this is called Bisha erva, right? A woman should not be should not be singing among men, and he prohibits women from singing among men. So, my suspicion is that, obviously, women were only singing with men if they were among family, but um, uh, clearly, this was a part, in, uh, uh, you know, part and parcel of the Ashkenaz culture, so much so that everybody sang at their Shabbat table, to the degree where the rabbis decided there had to be some rules around the Shabbos Miras, and, uh, and uh, it, it eventually appeared that there was some halachot in the svarim. So, all of this development made people wonder is there a source for saying mirot in Chazal? Is it really something so recent? Like, is it only an invention of early Germanic Jews? Is it something which is just comes out of the nature of uh, of, of Jewish people to sing? Or is there some mikkar? Is there some source in the early Chachamim, in the Gemara, in the Midrash? Is there some early source for singing, singing Shabbat simirot? So... There, is a f- there are a few sources suggested. One source that's suggested is a Gemara in Megillah. Def yudbet, amudbet. The Gemara says as follows, and I'll try to bring it up so I don't misquote it. I'm sorry. Uh, Shas Megillah. Mm, here we go. Yudbet, Amud Amudbet. It was, uh, uh, it quotes the pasuk in Esther, uh, the night, I think it's at the beginning. Right. On the seventh day, as the king's heart was gladdened with wine, the Gemara asks, Was it until the seventh day that he that, that he finally was gladdened with wine? The seventh day of the Feast of Ahashverosh was Shabbos. That the Jewish people eat and drink and they begin to say and words of praise. But the uh, Gentile nation, that when they eat and they drink, they only speak with words of licentiousness. Meaning that the Gemara, the Gemara seems to be saying that the insinuation of the Megillah is that on the seventh day, the Goim were doing, were, were were eating and being merry, and the Jewish people were 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 practicing Shabbat, and they would eat and drink and speak of Torah, and they would say praises, while the goyim would do the polar opposite. So saying praises, Devei bachot is very generic, very uh, you know. Generic term, divrei Bachot could mean that they went to go pray, it could mean that they speak praises of Hashem, but it doesn't specifically say that they sang praises, but that is one source that people try to cite that per, for perhaps this idea that the Jewish people on Shabbat sing uh, praises to Hashem. Another source is a mysterious madras, which we don't have, which the Arzaruah is, um, Sites And I remember hearing this a very long time ago, probably when I was in elementary school. I didn't know it was the Orzeruah, though. The Orzeruah says that by Maaseh Bereshit, Hashem gave the angels six wings. And every day, the, the Malachi Hasharet, the, the singing angels. And each day of the week, they sing, so to speak, with another wing. When the seventh day comes, they ask the Baruch Hu, what are we to do? And he says, don't worry, my seventh wing is B'nai Yisrael. My seventh wing is the Jewish people, and they are going to sing for me on Shabbat. And they are the ones who sing for me. And this is the Orzarua, Zarua, his, his Makar, his, his uh, source for, uh, for the Jewish people singing on Shabbat. And he actually brings a Pasuk. It's very interesting. Miknaf HaAretz Zimirot Shamanu, Tzvila Tzadik. The pasuk in Yeshayah. says, From the corners of the earth they shall hear songs. But instead of um, miknaf haaretz, meaning from the corners of the earth, he, he says miknaf, from the wings of the earth, zemirot shamanu, meaning that the songs of B'nai Yisrael are the wings of the earth. That when we sing, we elevate our world, just like every, all the Malachi Asherites, right? A, the, a wing is something which elevates an angel. It's a metaphor for something that elevates an angel. So the world has our own wing. Our wing for elevating ourselves is song, and and from the wing of the earth uh, we heard song. So that's the Rokea, uh, sorry, the Arzaruaz Mikar for singing. The rokea actually brings a Pasuk about Rina, uh, his own source. Another source is the Sefer Hasidim. He doesn't actually bring a Gemara for this, but he, 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 he does basically a Drasha. And in the Sefer Chaz ha- in one of the versions, it's possibly a mistake, but in one of the versions, he brings her Meshulam ben of Kleinimus, who was an early, uh, possibly Italian, uh, Rishon, and he brings him as making a very interesting uh, drasha, an, an exegesis, as they say, right? A very interesting drasha. He brings the pasuk in Yov. And according to this teshuvah, he was answering. It's like a, he was he was responding to Jews who don't believe in in the mitzvah of uh, of hadlakataner. So I'll just read you the language pretty quickly if I can. He says, "It says the pasuk says in blessed the seventh day. We don't know what that means. What does it mean? Hashem blessed a day. How could a day be blessed or blessed?" The only note way we can know what it means for a day to be blessed is if we know what it means for a day to be cursed. How would we know what it means for a day to be cursed? Well, let's speak to Iov. Iov is the guy who cursed everything. So let's find Iov in Parak 3, in Parakimol What does he say? They shall hope for light and there won't be. And the pasuk says, Al there will be no song. This teaches us This means that the light that Hashem blessed Shabbat with is the light of Shalom Bayit, right? We know that or can mean Shalom Bayit, so it must mean that if the if curse is a lack of light, then blessing must be an abundance of light. That teaches us that there's hadlakat Neirot on Shabbat because that is for Shalom Bayit. I'm just gonna skip ahead again. Al Why does pasuk say there should not be the pasuk says in Yoveh and on the day of which is cursed there should be no joy. Mikan that means that a day of blessing does have singing does have re'nana. This teaches us this pasuk tells us in Yoveh that if a cursed day has no singing then a blessed day meaning Shabbat Shvii, such a day should. Um, uh, have singing by it. So that's yet another Makar. The last Makar I wanted to, to mention was the Zohar. The Zohar in Resh Ayin Chetamud Bet actually says that it's important for for the Jewish people to sing around the table, around the Shabbat table. It's a, it's a short Zohar. He doesn't really say much, but he does say it in Aramaic. He says that it, that it's really important for the Jewish people to sing around their table. What's really interesting about that is that whether, whether or not you learn that there's, whether or not, whatever side of the aisle you're on, whether the Zohar is actually a Tanayic work or it's just a pseudepigraphic work from the, from, the, from the 14th century, uh, 13th century, you still have a very interesting historical element there. On the one hand, if it's the Tana'im, that means that from the time of the Tana'im there was already a teaching for us to sing around the Shabbat table. And if it's from 13th century Spain, that would mean that there were people in Spain who did have this minhag. Why else would somebody write in the Zohar that it's important for the Jewish people to sing, unless he was aware of this minhag already in the 13th century? So whatever side of the aisle you're on, this Zohar is a fascinating fascinating source for singing around the Shabbat table. The last thing I wanted to mention was simply the, 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 the authors of these three uh, PU team, the, the, these three foundational PU teams. So I'm going to be honest when it comes to music and the musicality of this PU team, I basically know nothing. I'm almost embarrassed at how little music I know. Um, the Ashkenazim and the Hasidim are way better at singing and they know a lot of uh, Shabbat Mirot. There are plenty of svaradim who have many, 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 many songs. Uh, if you look at the Syrians, they have the red book, right? The, the red book, and the Ashkenazim have a million different zmiros books. And I strongly suspect that the success of many Shabbat zmiros is due, in a large part, to their musicality. If you don't have a song for a poem, you're not going to keep that poem in your Siddur because why would you? Why, you wouldn't even sing it. You're not going to say it at your Shabbat table if you don't have a nice song to sing with uh, around it. My suspicion is that the, um, the musicality of the Shabbat Zmirot lent a strong part into the success of why some of them made it into the popular modern uh, Zmirot collections and some of them fell away. For example, um, the, one of the three foundational ones is from Rav Shimon Bar Yitzchak. Rav Shimon Bar Yitzchak is known as Rav Shimon Hagadol. He was a contemporary of Rabbeinu Gershom Or Hagola, one of the biggest Rishonim in, in early, early uh, uh, Ashkenaz. And he's given enormous respect. He was a, he was a big expert in tefillah. He was an expert in poetry. He was clearly, he's the, he's the father of, he's really the father of Ashkenazic poetry. And he wrote a tremendous amount of, um, he wrote a tremendous amount of piyutim, which uh, Avramayor Haberman actually compiled into a sefer. If you look on Hebrew books, you'll find the sefer of the Piyutim of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak. And he wrote this uh, Piyot called Baruch Hashem Yom Yom Yamos Lanu Yesha Upid Yom. It appears in a lot of Ashkenaz uh, Zemirot collections. I don't know if there's a song to it, I've never heard a song to it, but if someone has, you'll let me know. If there's a song you like, I'm sure you'll be very excited to let me know about that. Um, the, the honest, I forgot to mention, there's a book from, if anyone is interested in tracing the, the musicality of the Shabez Mirais, you have to keep in mind that musical notation, at least sheet music, didn't become fully standardized until um, roughly a few hundred years ago. So it's very difficult to trace exactly what people sang and how they sang it. The first scientific work on this was done by um, Abram Idelson. He wrote a book which you could actually get on Amazon. I'll just show it here. It's called uh, Jewish Music. The, uh, it's historical development. In the 30s, he wrote this uh, research book on Jewish music. And obviously, he's an academic, so he compares it a lot to Arabic and Christian uh, music and how it developed alongside it. So if anyone's interested in actually tracing the proper music of uh, the Shabbos miros, definitely look there. The second foundational Shabbos zemer, one of the first three which made, you know, the Shabbos miros into what they are today, is famously Kiesh Mira Shabbat from Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra. Rabbi Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra was one of the Rishonim who wrote uh, a lot. He also wrote a... um, uh, uh, basically a pirush on the Torah, very dense, very uh, academic, very high-level, not academic, very high-level uh, pirush on the Torah, which is very famous. He was born in Toledo, but eventually traveled his whole life. He ended up in all over uh, Baghdad. You name it, he, he was there. And Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra wrote many piyotim. He was a brilliant poet. And one of his most famous ones is Kiesh Mera Shabbat. If, if, if it's, it's kind of a didactic poem. It teaches a lot of the halachot of Shabbat. And it says, if I, if I watch Kiesh Mera Shabbat, Kelly if I watch the Shabbat, Hashem is going to, to watch over me. It's a very beautiful piyut. What's astounding is that in the school of Rashi already, in the Machser Vitri, they're already singing this piyut, which means that from when Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra wrote this piyut to when it attained viral status was a matter of years maybe less than a decade, maybe just two decades, but this song went absolutely viral. This piyut that he wrote seems to have stretched across a continent faster than almost any other song that, that I'm aware of, just from the fact that they were singing it so quickly. The um, It was probably a matter of decades at most. The final one is dirorikra the the final of the three foundational songs. So... Yeah, and uh, what I mean by f- foundational is that they're the first three of which compiled later, and this were by day. Eventually, they started singing these by night as well. But the third one is Duroi Yikra. and Duroi Yikra is interesting because it was written by Donash Ibn Labrat, who was a famous early Jewish grammarian. He lived in the nine hundreds. He was a nephew of Sadia Gaon, and he was very, very highly respected. He's famously had a had a dispute, a grammatical dispute with Menachem Ben Saruk. Rashi quotes both of them extensively all over Chumash. And he act, he spells his name in Dero Yikra, Dalit Nun Shin. So till today you can know that Donash Ibn Labrat wrote the Dero It was actually uh, revolutionary in its time because there was a disagreement, shall we say, about how exactly Jewish songs should follow a meter. And the... Arabic meters of song back then and the Jewish meters of song kind of borrowed from each other. So there was a meter called Hazaj. And Hazaj has a short syllable and then like six long syllables. So in the Arabic, the first syllable is very short, so it would be like naim, instead it would be like neem instead of na'im. So the Hebrew has a shiva, which would be ne'im or diror. And Donash wanted to use the Hazaj meter for a Shiva in the Hebrew and uh, his Jewish contemporaries weren't so happy about it. So, Dror Kra caused a little bit of a stir. And it's funny that it caused such a stir because so many uh, Zmirot after it were written in the Hazaj meter. For example, Adon Olam HaSher is also written in Hazaj. And honestly, Hazaj is so easy to, um, uh, Hazaj, I don't know how the, the Syrians say it, who knows, that it's so easy to adapt to so many different songs that is probably why Zoryacross survived, simply because it's so easy to adapt it. The meter itself is so easy to adapt to so many songs. Uh, one last thing I'll end off with was uh, I saw the the Yismach Machmeisha from Ramesha Teitelbaum. He says that he, he believes that any song, any one of the Shabbos mirrors which had Hatzlacha and which had the... Um, Success that it was sung by all the Jewish people over the past thousand years must have been written with Ruach HaKadosh. That was that was his uh, His uh, assertion and he believed in there are many today who believe in that uh, very strongly So this so much concludes I'm sure I'm sure uh, I'm gonna get a lot of feedback about this because so many people know more about Shabbos Miris than I do but this is the early history of it, and I hope next week to continue with Shachrit, the Shachrit of Shabbat. We'll discuss how Shachrit differs from a normal weekday Shachrit. We'll move on with the Tefilot of Shabbat. But this was so much for the, uh, the quote-unquote, liturgy of the home, the, the, the Zemirot Shabbat. So thank you everybody for tuning in, and we'll uh, continue next week, Bezrat Hashem.